All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington. Today, I'm joined by Robert Osuzua Ness. Robert is a senior researcher at Microsoft Research, professor at Northeastern University, and founder of AltDeep.ai. Before we get going, take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. And of course, you can follow us on all social media platforms, including TikTok and Instagram at Twimmel AI. Robert, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back, Sam. I'm looking forward to digging into our talk. It's been just over three years since the last time you were on the show. It's hard to believe that it's been that long and you've had a, shall we call it a change of scenery. So why don't we take a minute and start by having you update folks on what you're up to nowadays. So as you said, I'm at Microsoft Research, uh, and uh, my research generally focuses on probabilistic machine learning. Uh, very much interested in the intersection between that and uh, causality. I also work with some other causal inference researchers on tools for causal reasoning. So this includes a library called PyY, which is an open source library, not of which Microsoft is a major contributor. Um, there's other companies involved. So making those tools useful for data scientists and analysts and executives who are trying to do causal reasoning and build causal reasoning work workflow. Some of those tools are no-code tools. And of course, doing a lot of fundamental research, uh, the intersection of probabilistic machine learning, causality, recently large language models. Generally speaking, how do we think about making formal algorithms for reasoning, including causal reasoning, more accessible to the broader public? This episode, of course, is part of our trend series. So we'll be talking about the research in the field of causality and causal modeling over the past year and kind of the outlook from your perspective. But one question that I'd like to start us off with is your kind of general reflection on the space over the past year. I think the last time we spoke, it was right on the heels of Yashua Bengio's System 1, System 2 talk at NeurIPS which in my estimation put causality on the maps of and the minds and in the mouths of a lot of the machine learning and AI community. And then I think not long after that, we went into the pandemic and there was a lot of desire to try to take advantage of causal reasoning and causal models and healthcare and things like that. Do you think that interest has continued to accelerate or has it slow down. I hear about it a little bit less, is, which is maybe more my question is coming from. Well, sure. I think after Yasha Benjo's talk, I think you're right in that it put it on the radar for a lot of machine learning researchers. And in, in thinking about what the trends were for last year in preparation for our talk, I did end up thinking a lot about causal discovery methods, causal representation learning methods that's were directly inspired by, I think, that seed that Yasha Benjo planted that year. But also to your point, during the pandemic, I think a lot of people realize that when you have a black swan event like a pandemic, a lot of your historic data tends to not be as useful as you would hope. And so I think the pandemic also, as people were scrambling to apply their expertise to solving problems in that space, people realized that, okay, we need to have some causal representations in our model, some model of intervention in order to understand, in order to accurately model how we're going to make policy decisions with respect to epidemiology, as well as understanding the molecular biology of the disease. So I think you're right that the, the pandemic also shifted 
sights again towards causality. In in the last year, perhaps you haven't heard as much about causality as, as perhaps other kind of growing fields there, but I see a lot of connections with some of the things that were more popular last year and and those and so, and this, the topics that you've probably been talking with other guests about that were popular last year certainly were big themes in the causal workshops that we saw at the big machine learning conferences last year. And so, I'm happy to talk dive more into those ideas. Broadly speaking, I think that there's a lot of momentum under pushing forward causal reasoning in the space of machine learning, and I'm excited about what's going to happen in 2023. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I think one of those fields that you've already mentioned and that we'll spend some time digging into is everything that's going on around large language models, chat GPT, especially at Microsoft. But before we dig into that topic, we ask you to think about some of the major trends in the in the field. And the first one that you wanted to highlight was deep learning methods for causal discovery. Tell us a little bit about that field or that area of research and what's important there. So causal discovery is, I think we should define terms, it's learning from data what causes what. So another way of thinking about it is causal structure learning from data. Typically, you're trying to learn a directed acyclic graph. And I would say that before 2022, it had already become common to cast causal discovery as a continuous optimization problem. So you would take the space of DAGs or some other graph generalization and figure out some kind of continuous representation of that space and then try to optimize over that space. And just to continue your effort to define causal discovery, the idea is that in in papers, we might kind of just write down a causal graph and just write down the relationship between one actor in a relationship and another and do that based on intuition or what have you. What you're talking about with causal discovery is the idea that we've got a bunch of data is kind of the what we're trying to do with deep learning. We've got a bunch of data that data captures relationships and patterns and all these things. How can we extract those relationships, that graph, that pretty picture you might see in a paper from the data itself? Is that right? Yeah. And I think, you know, kind of putting my own personal spin on it, this was something that I spent a lot of time working on, particularly during my PhD and in areas like systems biology. And I had seen a trend then of trying to scale these algorithms to larger graphs, more nodes. And obviously the space of graphs is super exponential. And so there was a lot of focus on just getting bigger graphs. That that particular approach seemed divorced from the practical use cases for learning a graph because you know, typically if you were going to do some kind of downstream causal reasoning task using a graph, you didn't need all of those. You didn't need a graph that was this giant hairball of causal edges. You needed something that was very specific to the domain that you were working on and, and likely some subset of those nodes that you needed to reason about to actually solve the downstream task. And so I had become a little bit jaded, to be honest. And so when people started switching to using Atom Optimizer to solve this problem, I was like, you know, I kind of shrugged my shoulders and like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that's useful. But can you give an example, a concrete example of the kind of relationships that you might be look, looking at and referring to in your PhD research and since? So what was happening was that in these past efforts, I had recognized that it was important that you treat causal discovery as something that is a step in a downstream task and that you might want to orient your analysis with respect to whatever that downstream task is. And so in the case of biology, it was something like drug discovery. If you learn a graph and then you want to reason on that graph to figure out where to hit the system with a drug, well, you learn that graph and there's some uncertainty around that graph. Maybe that 
you should propagate that uncertainty down to the selection of the intervention. Typically, it was focused on learning one graph and learning as big a graph as possible. And so I became a little bit disenchanted with it at the time and switched to working on probabilistic machine learning, probabilistic programming, and watched causal discovery at conferences and had seen that we had started using deep learning frameworks and their ability to optimize in high dimensional spaces to essentially solve that same problem, but now optimizing over continuous space. And this year, or rather last year in 2022, the trend that I saw was actually connecting the learning of causal structure to downstream machine learning tasks. And I thought that was a really interesting development and I was excited about it. So what are some examples of that connection? You talked about it in the context of the biology use case, but from a pure machine learning perspective, what does it mean to connect that, the causal discovery to the downstream machine learning? For example, as a paper called On the Generalization and Adaptation Performance of Causal Models, this is using an idea from causal inference called independence of mechanism. The idea is that Suppose you have some cause and some effect. You have two variables. One's a cause, one's an effect. And the mechanism that drives the cause is separate from the mechanism that drives the effect given the cause. And so from a probabilistic standpoint, that means that the probability distribution of the cause and the conditional probability distribution of the effect given the cause are, if you model them with some, say, some, each of those, you have some parameter vector. So you have a parameter vector for the probability distribution of the cause, parameter vector for the probability distribution of the effect given the cause. Because of the independence of mechanism, those parameter vectors will be orthogonal. And so from a learning standpoint, that means that if you're learning the parameters for your entire system, you expect, you would like to use this orthogonality inside the learning process. And what this paper did was they looked at adaptation. So the idea is that, okay, if I have the correct direction between cause and effect, and I were to bring in a new data set that I didn't train it on, so I've done some pre-training and I bring in a new data set, only, the only parameter vector that should update is the parameter vector of the cause because the parameter vector of the effect is stable with respect to the cause. And so what happens then is since you have, if that's true, if you have the right graph, then you have fewer parameters to update in order to adapt to the new data set. And so they use that intuition to basically say like, well, the more right my graph is, the faster it should adapt to the new data set. And so they use that speed of adaption as a signal inside the optimization towards the causal graph. And when you say the speed of adaption, are we talking about, you know, what we might typically think of as like convergence rates and things like that, like meta parameters of the training process? as opposed to some some type of parameter or hyperparameter? So just like learning rate with respect to out of distribution data or speed of, or, or more generally kind of how fast it converges in the out of distribution data, yeah. In your experience, is that kind of a novel idea to pull that convergence rate into the machine learning loop? I would say it's not the first paper I've seen Historically, that's kind of using this causal invariance to enforce some kind of modularity on the parameters that you're that are being trained. But it's the first time I've seen it in terms of how fast a model trained on the candidate graph adapts to out of distribution data. That's the first time I've seen that. Yeah. And you identified some additional papers around this 
idea of causal discovery and, and its advancement over the past year, a lot of that work seems to be happening at DeepMind and Mila and in Montreal. Yeah, in fact, I'm, I'm mentioning two, three papers specifically, three of them by Rosemary Ke, who is at DeepMind, uh, some collaborators at Mila, including Yasha Bengio, Stefan Bauer, Bernard Sholkov, Sylvia Schiappa at, at DeepMind. So these people who are working with Rosemary really have led this kind of trend, I think, in terms of thinking about downstream machine learning tasks to guide causal discovery. So the other paper that I had shared was this you know, learning neurocausal models from unknown interventions. And so this is using the intuition that if you have a generative causal model and you do an intervention on one of the variables, one of the nodes in the graph, one of the variables in the model, the only thing that should respond to that intervention is everything that's causally downstream of it. And so they're assuming in this paper that you have some intervention data the to make it a bit more practical the inter, the targets of the interventions are unknown so they try to predict what the targets are but given the given you've predicted the right target you know if you have the right graph then the only things that should respond would be the variables in the in the graph that are downstream of the intervention target so comparing that intervention distribution to the actual empirical distribution of what responded to the intervention and what didn't in the training data that's they show how you can learn causal graphs using that kind of signal. Does that make sense? I think so. So the idea is that the more correct your graph is, the less effect given intervention will have on nodes in the graph that aren't downstream of where the intervention occurs. Right. And I mean, if you had the right graph, if you had a correct graph, obviously they wouldn't be affected at all. But the more right your graph is, the more you expect only things that are downstream to be affected. And so do they then somehow translate the degree to that the intervention impacts these other states into some kind of loss function and then kind of optimize across that? Exactly. And I think that this is, when I learned causal inference, it was, if things are very binary, like either you're right or you're wrong, either you've gotten this, in causal discovery, we would you would just define some scoring function and then optimize over something like the some kind of penalized likelihood of the data and there were and there were graphs and there, of course there are causal discovery algorithms that use intervention data to learn the causal graph this is the first time i've seen one where the interventions are unknown i've seen a few papers in the past that softened the idea that you know exactly what the intervention targets are but i would say like this one it's kind of seamlessly integrated into a loss function that you would optimize in a unsupervised training procedure. And so I thought that was, that was quite novel. Yeah. To talk through if you've got, you know, presumably you've got a known graph and you've got unknown interventions present in some data and those unknown interventions, I think you said, are it's not only the nature and degree of the intervention but also you know where the intervention is occurring is unknown is there a simple kind of toy example that we could construct here to make it more concrete okay let's think of a of a randomized experiment right so a randomized experiment so let's say that my graph is that or we're a data scientist at a gaming company and you're interested in the relationship between engagement in the game side quests and the amount of in-game purchases and there's a common cause there of whether or not you're a member of a guild and people who are because people who are members of guilds tend to collaborate more and thus maybe they engage in side quests less and people who are members of guilds might 
pay different amounts for in-game items because they're going to share it. They're going to pull resources, for example. And so if I wanted to run an A-B test or an experiment, I would do an inter uh, that's that's wanted to understand the causal effect of side quest engagement on in-game purchases. When somebody logs on and they go through my digital platform, normally their level of side quest engagement would be set by this, would be affected by whether or not they're in the guild. But what I'm going to do is modify the game dynamics for that player and say, all right, well, I'm going to maybe coerce them into engaging more in side quests or coerce them less than paying, engaging more in side quests. And so I'm specifically targeting this, the side quest engagement node setting it to a fixed value. And so that's an intervention. It's what's called an ideal intervention. It's it's set by a random policy, but sure, it's an ideal intervention. And so that, that's realistic data to have. But oftentimes, you don't know exactly what node is being targeted. So say, for example, I met, I so earlier I said, I talked about, say, signal, signaling pathways in systems biology. And let's say that my intervention on the system is, I don't know, oxidative stress on the cell. And I don't know exactly which, you know, some the nodes in my graph are referred to the activity of certain proteins in the signaling pathway, but I don't know exactly which proteins that, that intervention is going to affect and, and exactly what is going to set their value to. And so that's a much more flexible type of intervention regime to be in or general intervention regime to be in. And so they solve the problem for that regime. So they don't assume you know exactly what nodes get targeted and what values they get set to. And the idea is that you just, uh, not just, but you are collecting so much data that on the average, you're able to make inferences about the nature of these interventions and what nodes they're targeting. The, the, I guess the scenario, the reaction I'm experiencing is the scenario seems so open-ended. I'm, it's not clear to me at all how you derive, the how you get the result that they've achieved. So what they're trying to do is predict which nodes are the targets of the intervention. And then conditional on that, you are able to predict what the downstream consequences of the intervention would be. And based on the accuracy of those predictions with respect to, so you obviously don't have any supervision over which nodes are become intervened on, but you have, you have intervention data and you can see, okay, well, there was an intervention here and these nodes were affected. And so we want to find a causal graph that says like, well, supposing there wasn't, we haven't, we know there was an intervention. Let's suppose it was this node and that would cause certain, these nodes to be affected. Now we have that data and, and suppose it was that node and that, that causes those nodes to be affected. Now you don't know exactly which nodes were affected. That's there's uncertain, that's a latent variable, but of course you can propagate it down towards what nodes are affected and, and try to find a graph that best matches your data set in that sense. And is, is this necessarily a scenario that involves time series data where you're able to look at propagation or are they a data set of independent interventions and, and outcomes? Now, in this case, it, it was equilibrium data. So we're assuming that once the intervention has been applied, you see the equilibrium consequences of the intervention. Okay. Super interesting. Interesting. Uh, was there another paper that you wanted to touch on in, in this topic? Yeah, this is another paper by called Learning to Induce Causal Structure. Some of the authors overlap with the previous papers. So typically, 
the way we've done causal discovery is to treat it as an essentially in machine learning terms, an unsupervised learning problem, sometimes just observational data, sometimes with a mix of observational and interventional data as within the previous example. That's difficult because it, the results tend to be pretty sensitive towards the hyperparameters that you in, in your in your model. It's hard to get those configured to where you like them for a given problem. And then of course, then you have to redo it for another problem. So in this paper, they made it a super a supervised learning problem in a sense that they took data sets of they took data and the corresponding graph and it treated the data as the features and the graph itself as the label and then predicted what the graph would be given the data and and I was skeptical when I first saw it because in causal discovery there's we have this equivalence class problem, which is to say that it's possible that you can have two or more graphs that are uh, completely statistically consistent with the data. These, da these graphs will have the same skeleton, but they'll have some of their edges will be going in different directions, so they're fundamentally different causal graphs. But from a, a likelihood point of view or a conditional dependence point of view, they're indistinguishable with respect to the data. And so my thinking was like, well, if you did this, if you tried to say, well, I'm going to get these big data sets or simulate some big data sets of graphs and their corresponding data, there might be some bias that you inadvertently, say, for example, I have two I have a graph of two nodes and there's I can I can orient the nodes from A to B or orient the nodes from B to A. These, by the way, are two graphs that are in the same Markov equivalence class. And so they should be indistinguishable from data. Just using just statistical information and data, you could have other inductive biases, but from just conditional dependence and likelihood standpoint, they're indistinguishable. If I say create some data sets that has these as examples, maybe I put in the A B node more often than the BA it's the A B graph more often than the BA graph because I I like things to be alphabetical, for example. And like that that bias, I was a little bit concerned when I read that bias would kind of pollute the, the approach. But based on the ablation and the sensitivity test they did in this in the analysis, that didn't seem to be a problem. And generally speaking, they got good results. Now, did they expect that to be a problem? And did they design their method to address that problem specifically? And if so, how did they approach it? Well, I mean, it's just a matter of making sure that you don't introduce that kind of bias into the data. Well, not necessarily the, for example, the alphabetizing issue, but just the equivalence. Like how, what is the method that they, how does their method avoid this issue of there being many ways to represent graph from the same underlying data? Well, I mean, they can, so the easiest thing to do is just be aware of the issue. And so if you recover, you, you infer a graph, you caveat it by saying like, well, this, this is true up to an equivalence class. So for example, like we do have representations for equivalence classes of graphs. So if you thought that this was a problem, you could turn a directed acyclic graph into something called a completed partially directed acyclic graph. It's basically just a I don't see that acronym quite as much. Right. So it just, yeah, yeah, CP DAG. Yeah. It just means that imagine that you had a DAG and that you're going to take some of the edges where you don't have, you're not 100% sure that it's oriented from A to B. You just make them undirected. So every, so, so in other words, that the, an undirected edge means that you can't resolve causality in this edge, but a directed edge means you can resolve causality. So you could just do that. And there's, and there are algorithms that, that will turn a DAG into a, a CP DAG based on certain assumptions. And another interesting thing that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that 
you, know, it, you might say, for example, be interested in a downstream task where you wanted to incorporate the uncertainty. So you, rather than having a, essentially a point estimate of a graph, you would realize like whether this is one of several highly probable graphs given this data. And so maybe you want to propagate that uncertainty to the downstream task. This approach use a transformer architecture to encode a joint distribution on edges in a causal graph. And, you know, it's one of those things where the first time you see it, you're like, yeah, of course, why wouldn't it? It's like a causal graph. It's like, it's an ordered sequence. You could treat it like any other, you could use transformer networks like you would model any other sequence. But, but once you see it, you see somebody do it, you're like, aha, yeah, that's a great idea. Because what, what if you wanted to say, work with uncertainty in causal discovery before, what you would often do is maybe sample some ensemble of graphs and then, or use some variational inference approach and get a, basically a probability matrix where each element of the matrix is the marginal probability of an edge. And when you do that, when you work with just the marginal probability of edges, you lose a lot of global information from the graph. Say, for example, the fact that the graph has to be acyclic. There's a probability matrix. You kind of you can lose that information. But the transformer network, it, it encodes a joint distribution on the edges. And so you have to obviously generate from it to make use of it. But I, was, I thought that was interesting. That was the first time I'd seen that as well. Well, we've spent a bunch of our time digging into the first trend that you've identified. And, you know, it's probably fair to acknowledge that for me, at least the causal uh, causality in machine learning is one of these topics that I am super intrigued about, but it's one of those like quantum computing that like I have to hear it like five or 10 times for it to fully sink in. So and I guess we'll be talking about the book that you're writing to help folks grok the topic. We talk about things to look forward to for 2023. But if anyone else is like me trying to keep up with this conversation, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> All right. So the next thing that you had was talking about providing causal inductive bias to models. What are you seeing there? Yeah. So, I mean, I, again, I'm drawing kind of lines of a trend over papers that probably weren't thinking about what the other people were doing when they were doing it, but just, it just seems that there's a connecting thread to me. So the first one I surfaced was a paper by a guy named Lars Lorch working with Bernard Shokoff and some others called Amortized Inference for Causal Structure Learning. And at its core is a causal discovery paper using variational inference. What was interesting about it to me was that they were using simulators to to simulate the simulate data so you have the, the simulator has a ground truth graph uses the simulate data and then you train the encoder to map back from the data to the structure of the simulator and then you use that artifact in downstream causal discovery task what was interesting about that to me was that i think there's a lot of fields in engineering in the sciences so you know what I think what scientists call process models, what engineers call simulators, and systems biology, kind of wholesale models of organisms, gene simulators, protein signaling simulators. These are ways that people encode knowledge, often from physical domains, about causal mechanism. And so using that to create the inductive bias for a causal discovery or any other algorithm or any kind of inference task, but you're wanting that, that inference to be biased towards the causal knowledge that's baked into a possibly black box simulator. I think that's an interesting direction. So you mentioned causal discovery in, in describing this work. Let's maybe take a step back and have you kind of clearly delineate the 
that first trend you saw from this trend. What I'm hearing is that first trend is you have a bunch of data and you want to pull from that data, the graph, i.e. the relationships, the causal relationships that occur in, in that data. And here you're trying to create a model that reflects causal relationships in the world. And we're going to talk through some ways folks have approached that. One is through simulation. To zoom out from the causal discovery thing, I'll mention the second paper, which is called Climax, a foundation model for weather and climate. And it's a, so this is a multimodal foundation model. Uh, so we're taking in different types of climate and weather data sets and training a foundation model on top of these and then doing some fine tuning for whatever downstream weather or climate prediction task you have. But what, again, what was really interesting about this was not just the diversity of the types of data that were going into the model, but also the use of simulated data. So you have process models from, which are obviously big in, in climate science as well as meteorology. And, and these encode a bunch of causal information about physical mechanisms that regulate the climate and the weather at different resolutions at different timescales. And and so the idea that, you know, beyond, so in, in causality, you, you, we know that, you know, oftentimes just the, a set of interventional or observational data is not enough to learn a full causal model, but a simulator is essentially somebody's causal model of a data generating process where they're, you know, rather than thinking in terms of graphs and, and edges, they're thinking in terms of the local level interactions between components in the system and the physical laws that regulate them. And in some cases, you can extend this to simulators of non-physical phenomenon like you like you would see in a software like NetLogo, say, for example, simulating how disease passes through a population, right, by kind of creating some rules for how people in that population interact. And so you think you can imagine that. So using that as an example, maybe I don't, it's hard for me to come up with some kind of causal graph for how disease passes through a population, but I could write some simulation for how like this person, they leave their house and then they bump into that person and there's some chance that they're going to spread the contagion to that person. Some people are super spreaders and some people are not. And you can kind of think about the causal system in terms of local level interactions, build that into a simulator, and then use that simulated data to essentially create the training data for your foundation model, especially if you can combine it with other sources of actual data. And you know what's interesting about that to me is you can control how that data is simulated, right? So therefore you can make sure that you are simulating data from, from across the manifold that you would need to actually learn a faithful causal model. And so that's, I think, I mean, we could talk about that more in kind of trends for 2023, but I think that's an interesting, exciting area of research. It's a, billion dollar industry. And we already, there is already a lot of work in using machine learning models to build surrogates of simulators, particularly those that are expensive to run. And so it's kind of a natural extension to kind of want to build causal machine learning models that are surrogates of simulators and, and make sure that the, that you're not just approximating the simulator, but you're also being intentional about the causal knowledge that you extract or the causal information that you extract from the simulator. What is it about the nature of causal models that makes it such that you can know enough to build a simulator of some kind of effect, but you know the causal model that you can build just by mapping what you know that went into the simulator isn't isn't useful, isn't sufficiently useful that you wouldn't just do that directly. 
So one is when you build a simulator, you can just number one, stay at the, like at a very low resolution, right? You can just think what are the basic, for lack of a better word, particles or entities in my system and how do they interact? Now, the causal question that you might ask might be at a higher level of abstraction, but you could always simulate data and then figure out some way to aggregate that data so that you can think about what the right level of abstraction is from the simulated data. But in a traditional causal model, you have to build that abstraction directly into the model. Say, for example, in, you know, a lot of causal inference research has come from places like economics, econometrics, where it's the people kind of take the nodes in the graph as a given. You know, in machine learning, for example, we're often working with very low-level features like pixels or like like bits in an audio file. And so, what are examples of the kind of nodes in the graph that we're talking about in the economics, econometrics levels of abstraction? Well, sir, say for example, you were going to do some kind of analysis of the impact of you know, no child left behind on graduation rates. But if you had to kind of draw a diag for that system and thinking about what's the, the amount of money spent on the school and the amount of students who graduated and the ones who didn't. And in that kind of domain, you the, there's obviously some flexibility and abstractions, right? I think about, for example, variables like race and ethnicity have, if you think about it in terms of what the census form looks like, has changed a lot over several decades. But generally speaking, in those social science domains, there's kind of a an understanding about what the nodes, what the variables in the model are going to be. But in physical science, it might just be easier to start with whatever the highest resolution say, or lowest level of representation is, and then just focus on the uh, micro interactions between those particles, and then, uh, then do your reasoning about the higher level state of the system from simulated data. Got it. And to your point earlier, you the practice of simulation in many of these fields is decades long and well-established and to some degree or another off the shelf in many cases. Yeah, and often involving large simulators that are more or less black box that are widely in use and, and to be able to kind of extract causal information from that black box would be valuable. Awesome. Awesome. So the next paper you wanted to talk about is the inducing causal structure for interpretable neural networks. Is this one related to simulation as well? I don't think the authors, well, maybe they were. I, they So they were using, <laughs> so this. Not as explicitly? Not as explicitly. I think it could be used. So if our goal is to figure out how to be intentional about extracting causal information from simulators, you could apply this technique. So they were applying it to neural nets, actually. So they were saying like, okay, well, Let's suppose that we wanted to train a neural network to have certain causal structure to reflect the you know, causal structure in the data generating process in order to, for example, be more explainable. And, and so what they do is this: they introduce this idea or previous papers that, built, that this paper builds upon, built on this idea called an interchange intervention. So this is essentially an intervention on the internal states of the neural network models. So for example, like if you had a language model that predicted sentiment from text, you could switch out the embedding for the input text for the embedding of some other text and then see how the output changes and that would under, that would help you understand you know something of how the the embedding affects the sentiment and so that they were using these they were using this technique in in training a neural network rather than just analyzing one so uh, you have some causal model that's a that's generating data that's now going to be used to train a neural network and so that you would make sure that the causal that the 
let's say, for example, the nodes in the causal DAG are corresponding to representations in the neural network. And, and so you, you would align these representations using the, this intervention technique and then make sure that, say, for example, interventional and counterfactual queries that are simulated from your causal model are aligning with interventional and counterfactual inferences from the neural net. I brought this up. It's been, you know, it's it's the eclectic area in terms of understanding and enforcing abstractions, causal abstractions in neural nets, but it was clear to me that like, okay, well you could do this for if you wanted to say for example, use a simulator to or some other causal model to train a foundation model, for example, and make sure that rather than just simulating a bunch of data and then feeding it into your model, you're simulating it, you're, you're generating data to be fed into your model, to your foundation model or to your large language model or to your neural network, such that you're being very explicit about the, the causal information that is being digested by that, the model that's learning. And that would provide some theoretical guarantees. And there's a lot of questions now about can these foundation models, can these large language models reason causally? And whether or not they can, you know, if you take techniques like this, you could provide theoretical guarantees about, so you know, while I was, we, were, we were saying, this was the kind of intervention data that we simulated. And, we, and so we know that, you know, at least in given enough data, it's learning that, it's learning that causal information when you train the actual foundation model or the whatever model you're training. And so I think it's an interesting direction for understanding how we can incorporate causal information more systematically and intentionally into models like foundation. So at a high level, this one is saying we want to accomplish the same goal, use data to impart some degree of causal structure into a neural network that we're training. Is this paper primarily focused on ways to manipulate and represent that input data, that feature data, so as to accentuate for the network or the training process, these causal relationships? Yeah, so the causal relationships, the causal representations, the outputs of simulating the outcome of the output from a from an intervention distribution so so simulating what happens if you do an intervention simulating counterfactual outcomes and making sure rigorously that the neural net that's being trained is faithfully learning those 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 elements awesome awesome uh the next trend you identified from last year is causal representation learning tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there Sure. So, I mean, for people who are new to the space, it's causal representation learning is a problem of learning latent representations and from low level, high dimensional data that correspond to causal objects in a data generating process. It's connected to, say, previous work in learning disentangled representations and it has roots in independent components analysis. What I think in terms of trends I don't think we've seen any huge applications of causal representation learning yet, but I think we're moving there steadily. I saw some papers that were formalizing the desiderata for representation learning. So like, in other words, what makes a good causal representation in causal terms. And once you do that, what that allows you to do is use is causal inference theory to be basically a lot more formal in terms of how a good causal representation ought to behave. And so... In, a, in, a, in other words, it, it, this, the talk of what, the, how, what makes a good representation becomes a lot more formal and a lot less hand-wavy. It enables you to understand exactly 
if and when you could learn that representation from your data. I think in, in a previous research on Desiderata, there was, you know, people were trying to hack at this problem, even though there was some evidence and then, you know, and then later on some papers that were showing that it was actually not solvable in a unsupervised observ observational data setting. And so, and so I mentioned I saw a paper here by uh, Yixin Wang and Michael Jordan, Desiderata uh, for representation learning, a causal perspective. And so this, I thought it was interesting in that it's using probabilities of causation. So probabilities of causation are, so what lawyers, for example, call but-for causality and proximal causality. The idea is something like a probability of necessity, which is that given some cause led to some outcome, you ask, had the cause causal event not occurred, would the outcome still have occurred? And the probability of sufficiency, which is, you know, what's the, and then what's the probability that that statement is true? And then, you know, the probability of sufficiency, you have a statement like, you know, what's the probability that if the outcome, supposing that the causal event didn't happen and the outcome didn't happen, what's the probability that had the causal event happened, the outcome would then have happened, right? So, you know, that the out, that the cause was sufficient to cause the uh, the causal variable was sufficient. The causal event was sufficient to cause the outcome event, and then the, on the other case, that the causal event was necessary to cause the outcome event. And so this is something that we have a lot of theory behind. In the univariate case, this paper explored it in the context of learning a lower dimensional, but you know, obviously more than univariate representation from high dimensional data. But it also used a lot of those that old theory about probabilities of causation to understand whether or not you could even learn these probabilities of sufficiency and necessity from data itself. And, and the backup, like the idea was that a good causal representation had both a high probability of necessity and a high probability of sufficiency. Yeah, maybe again, taking a step back and trying to distinguish this trend from previous ones that we mentioned. In the case of causal discovery, you've got a bunch of data and you want to learn the graph, like learn the relationships. Here, you have a bunch of data and you want to, you're, you still kind of want to learn relationships, but you want to learn, it's more about learning a minimal kind of core representation of the causal structure, meaning how would you differentiate that from learning the, learning a minimal graph? It's not actually unrelated to causal discovery in the sense that, so let's suppose that you have, so causal representation learning and causal representation learning, disentanglement, disentangled representations, this is often thinking about the high dimensional data that you have common in, in machine learning. While causal discovery traditionally is you're thinking about tabular data that's in Got category. You know, so it's a bit of a setting distinction, right? But the problem is similar or the same, right? So you can think most causal discovery algorithms don't assume any latent variables, or in particular, they don't assume latent causes. So that's you assume in causal inference we call sufficiency, which is that you have a set of observed variables and that there are no common unobserved causes for those observed variables, and Kind of an IID type of assumption. Yeah. You, for example, could assume that you had some latent variables and that the observed data is conditionally IID given those latent variables and then try to learn what those latent variables are. So I would call that a type of causal representation learning insofar as you're trying to learn if you have a, a vector of 10 observed variables and you're trying to learn, say, a smaller vector of two or three or four unobserved causes, 
that some of these variables, these observed variables share. And the causal representation learning problem is essentially that, but you now extended to pixels, for example. And so, so I, so I think kind of you know, linking the two and just saying like, well, this is that these are essentially similar things like you're trying to learn some latent variables that are latent causes and you're learning the cause you're hoping to learn the causal structure between them that's a kind of causal representation learning on ordinary tabular data and i think that's actually a really important direction because you know not everybody is working with high dimensional videos and this and that sometimes you just want to do good data science and learn causal in fact if anything one of the biggest problems of traditional causal discovery is it assumes there are no latent variables which is almost never the case and so I mentioned here a paper from Kun Zheng at Kun Zheng's group at CMU called the uh, identification of linear non-Gaussian latent hierarchical structure. And so again, this, so this is exactly that. We're taking tabular data, we're learning some latent causes, and we're learning the causal structure between those latent causes and, uh, and relying on linear non-Gaussian assumptions in order to get the math to work. And it's using observational data. So I think that's another trend that we're kind of seeing in causal representation learning. In terms of, can we kind of simplify the problem a little bit in order to understand what the the causal limitations are and try to resolve those first before scaling it up? Does that make sense? Yeah, in the sense that you're not trying to simplify it so much as to as to the causal discovery types of problems that we were talking about earlier, but given the high dimensionality setting, what are the core elements? You know, is there some core element of causality that you can identify? The way I think about it is like this. One mode of research that I think has been very successful in deep learning is to essentially brute force a practical problem with a lot of compute and a lot of data and try to try different architectures, try different configurations, try different activation functions, just try different setups of the problem until you get something that works. So essentially trial and error. And then once it works, you do something like an ablation study to figure out what is why driving, it why it what's works. What's the thing, right? right. Yeah, what's what's the, thing? the thing? And then can, can you reduce it down to that thing and then write a, the thing is all you need paper, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but that's difficult to do when causal reasoning is involved because it, you don't know if when it's not working, you don't know if the reason is not working is because the causal problem is not identified. In other words, it's ill-posed given the data and your causal assumptions, or if it's because of some of the other problems that are common in, in, in machine learning, like say, for example, kind of issues like working in high dimensional settings, for example. And so what you need to do, I think, to resolve this issue, if you don't know if it's the causal issue or if it's the scale, if it's a scaling issue or if it's the, if it's the forgetting or if it's the, whatever the non-causal issue might be, is that you have to kind of simplify the problem to something that isolates just the causal issues. Then you need to resolve them and then once you know that you're standing on solid formal causal theory ground then scaling it up and so i think like so i that's why i highlight this like kun jang's work because you know he calls it causal representation learning but it's linear non-gaussian variables that you can put in like a pandas data frame similarly i mentioned this this work a systematic evaluation of causal discovery in visual model-based reinforcement learning so this there was a, I think in 2021, there was a 
reinforcement learning environment called Causal World, which involves like a 3D environment of robotic hands manipulating blocks. And the goal there was to kind of create a RL environment where causality was important. Say, for example, that the agent, in terms of learning how to manipulate the blocks, that the color of the blocks didn't matter, for example, because they're not causally related to any of the issues that come up with manipulating blocks. But it was just so hard. There's just so many things that are hard <laughs> that you have to solve there that we hadn't made much progress. And so I was like, this paper, for example, introduces a simpler 2D <laughs> physics environment with blocks of different weights and basically heavier blocks can push lighter blocks. And so it, it distills it down to just the core puzzle. So if I do an intervention and I push it on this block, the other block is only going to move if it's lighter than that block. It's simple images and uh, you're focused on that core causal problem. And then hopefully once you've solved it there, then you can say, scale it up to something like causal world. Uh, so I think that was an interesting and useful development kind of in the way that people working on, on the causal aspects of reinforcement learning were starting to think about their problems. Interesting. So you've got a last category here called actual causality and causal judgments. What's that one about? Yeah. So you essentially mean the same thing to different audiences. So in, in traditional causal inference, cause, actual causality is in contrast to what most of us think of in terms of you know what causes what. So that we, so if I say smoking causes lung cancer, it's called token causality. But if I, for example, observe a dead person and or, and I say, well, this person died of lung cancer, and I'm interested in was it the smoking, or was it, for example, the smog, or the hereditary predisposition heart disease, for example. So that's actual because you're talking about a specific instance as opposed to one concept being causal to another concept. In terms of, instead of talking about what variables cause what variables, you're talking about what events cause what events. And causal judgments refers to which of those? So causal judgments is what cognitive psychologists refer to how humans reason about actual causality. So in other words, it, from a causal inference standpoint, it's funny that in, in the causal inference research, actual causality is kind of developed quite slowly in the sense that what happens is from a causal standpoint, if we say like if there was somebody who was smoking in the woods and there was a forest fire, if you draw like the presence of oxygen inside that as a node in that DAG, there's no way of looking at that and saying like, no, the smoking in the woods was more of a causal factor in his outcome than the presence of oxygen just because oxygen is always there. Or something less extreme is like, well, it was you were in the woods during fire season and therefore you cannot blame the dryness of the trees for the fire you have to blame you you have to blame the individual because they were smoking graphical causal inferences had trouble dealing with that and, and people came up with these ways of quantifying actual causality using graphical ca causal inference but the way that research kind of developed was that you would come up with some approach to it and then somebody would come up with a counterexample, something that's obvious to a human that's knowing in this case clearly this thing is at fault but this quantitative method from causal inference literature fails. And then so what people do is they go back and they add nuance to their definitions and to their actual causes to accommodate this new thing. And then somebody comes out with another thing and then you have to update it again. At the end of the day, the definitions of actual causes in a graphical sense tend to get a bit weird because now you can see how they've just expanded to accommodate all kinds of, of edge cases. At the same time, there's this literature from 
computational cognitive scientists who are trying to understand how it is that humans make causal judgments. So they observe that humans are really good at, say, observing some outcome event. Say, for example, a bunch of blocks has fallen on the floor, a bunch of milk has fallen on the floor, and then figuring out what happened. In fact, sometimes eerily good, right? Like if you have kids and you kind of walk into the living room and you see some kind of scene and you can just make instant conclusions about what, <laughs> what, <laughs> what, what unfolded to get here. And it's not clear how we do that. And so, and so what this approach to research tries to do is say like, okay, well, let's come up with some a set of say causal narratives where we kind of vary different factors in, in the causal narrative, do a, a study with some undergraduate students or some Turks and ask them how they judge, how they make causal judgments, how they make attributional judgments, how they assign responsibility, how they, make, how they assign blame in these situations, and then quantify the statistical properties of these responses and break them down. Into, you know, they, they've designed the questions so that they can kind of understand what the key variables and how humans make these judgments are. And then they build a, a computational model of that process. And so in the papers I list here, so I mentioned a paper called a counterfactual simulation model of causal judgments for physical events, and then a, a follow-up paper, what would have happened, counterfactuals, hypotheticals, and causal judgments. And so the idea here is that they came up essentially with a with the idea that humans imagine counterfactuals in their head. In, in other words, they mentally simulate counterfactuals. So what, to understand this, you know, imagine some billiard balls on a table and then I, I roll a billiard ball towards a pocket, but it hits another ball. And then I ask a human, say, hey, if that other ball had not been there, would the original ball had gotten in the pocket? That's a counterfactual question. And then what the human does is they mentally imagine the trajectory of that ball with the other ball removed. Right, so they mentally simulate the counterfactual situation, and the idea is that this is how humans make causal judgments about why things happened. So, like again, in law, I mentioned probabilities, necessity, and sufficiency. Lawyers call this but-for and proximal causation. That you're trying to understand guilt of a of a of a, for example, a criminal who who's on defendant in a criminal trial by asking like, well, would this bad thing have happened had they not done this act, right? Was the bad thing that they did sufficient to cause this bad outcome? So for example, proximal causality is if somebody dies because somebody else punched that person, you're asking, well, was they shouldn't have punched them, but was the punch sufficient to actually kill a person in most situations, right? And so like you ask these kinds of these questions to make a judgment about this individual. And so like this is trying to model how those types of judgments work. And I think uh, this is an area of literature that's it's really interesting. It's been overlooked by the kind of actual causality literature, often because it involves human causal judgments involve things that are a lot are nebulous to people with who are thinking in terms of causal inference and statistics. So for example, a big factor of causal judgments is how normal a cause is. Like, should you have been there in the first place, right? So if I, for example, if I go into a grocery store and I accidentally knock over some olive oil and somebody slips and breaks their hip, the judgment of my guilt in that situation is different than if the exact same scenario unfolded, but I broke into the grocery store. Right. So like the background probabilities or normality or some sense of how expected background causes are is a big factor that's that I think has been challenging to capture in traditional causality. But that these researchers have done a good job of, of highlighting.
I mentioned another paper here called Counterfactuals and the Logic of Causal Selection. So causal selection, again, is just of multiple candidate causal events, picking the right event, and humans are very good at it. And it's been hard for us to get kind of get right in algorithms. And, you know, and then this, so this paper just highlights that, that there's counterfactual simulation that we're imagining, we're simulating different counterfactual possibilities. But one common thread is that they all are likely counterfactual possibilities. So we tend to focus on counterfactual outcomes that are probable. So it's kind of like a, I think of it like a counterfactual Occam's razor. And that people, and also that's the strength of the cause on the effect is another big factor in how they assess these causal judgments. And so I think that's really important going forward, particularly since there's a lot of things that we can use here to understand, for example, how large language models are reasoning causally, as well as train them, say, through fine-tuning or through reinforced learning with human feedback to uh, make better causal judgment. Are the papers you you identified generally of the cognitive science perspective trying to understand how humans are making these causal judgments, or are they methods paper? I thought you mentioned simulation in here, which kind of suggests a method, hey, we observe this in humans, let's try to do something approximate in computers and see if we can get some interesting results. So these papers, often the authors are publishing in both machine learning and in cognitive science conferences. A lot of times the kind of structure of the paper is, here's how we think causal reasoning in humans works. We're going to design a study with humans to evaluate whether that's true. And then we're going to build a computational model that can essentially replicate these results. So in other words, building a, a model of the algorithm that happens in the human head. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we cover a lot of ground. Those, I guess, maybe one way to kind of net this out is that the entire field, well, maybe this last one was a little bit different, but a lot of what you talked about was, hey, we've got a lot of data. What can we learn about causal structure from that data? It was kind of a big driving theme in the field right now. And you've identified some specific areas that we've made progress on that recently. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the tools, open source projects, benchmarks, anything that you've seen of note that you know folks may be interested in checking out. Sure. So I encourage people to check out the PyY library. Again, this is an open source library. It's grown beyond Microsoft Research and has active involvement from our collaborators at Amazon and is being used both in research and in industry. Uh, we recently mentioned that causal representation learning work from Kun Jang's group at CMU that was implemented in a package called Causal Learn that's now been added to, to PyY. And so you have a few causal discovery, causal representation learning options in, in, that, in that suite of libraries. I want to call out a really cool package, doesn't get a lot of play, called Why Not, or pronounced Why Not. It's, uh, it's lowercase y and then zero. It's a causal inference library that implements identification algorithms. So identification algorithms, so if you've heard of the do calculus, for example, a the do calculus is how you prove that some causal question that you want to answer can be identified and estimated just identify it from your data, and then you can think about statistical estimation after that. So those rules, like the dual calculus, are you can there. There are algorithms called identification algorithms that will just do those that reasoning for you. And I would say that uh, with the exception of a, of an R package called CFID, you didn't see a lot of these algorithms like just accessible and as open source until Why Not came around. And so. 
there's regular ID algorithm, there's something called ID star, and then there's conditional ID star. Those are all implemented in and why not. So again, if you're interested in understanding identification algorithms and causal inference, that that's the Python library to go to. I also included a link that I mentioned that there's a simplified version of the causal world reinforcement learning library. So uh, it's called causal MBRL. There was a big paper called Beyond the Information Game, quantifying and extrapolating the capabilities of large language models. It had like about a billion authors on it. It's a set of benchmarks for evaluating large language models, and it has it has several benchmarks related to causal inference and causal reasoning. So if you're interested in the intersection of causality and large language models, I think this would be the first place to look in terms of finding good benchmarks to evaluate. How about on the commercial side? Are we seeing commercial application of some of the trends that you're identifying or new tools that are making it easy for folks to use causality, causal modeling? I mean, obviously the we're commercializing foundation models, right? And so the obviously the big advances in large language models that we saw last year, I mean, I'm at Microsoft, we were in that obviously we had a big announcement about incorporation of GPT into Bing and Edge recently. I think going forward, we're going to see a lot of really impactful developments in terms of productizing these models in the space, as well as developing new foundation models. And some of those foundation models will be, well, some of those foundation models like the large language models will already be surprisingly good at reasoning causally. And then, of course, we'll be developing new foundation models where we can actually be pretty intentional about causal reasoning during training and in terms of the data that we provided using simulators, for example. I think that started last year and that's going to continue to be a trend. When you say those causal models will be good at reasoning causally, are you speaking about causal models that causal models beyond you know GPT three for example? So if you go to Bing's new chat service right now and you ask it to say, "Hey, I'm interested in a cause the causal relationships between smoking and lung cancer. Give me a causal DAG that involves the causal relationships between smoking and lung cancer," and it will give you a DAG, and it will be pretty plausible. That doesn't necessarily say that it's doing causal reasoning, just it could have just found a DAG somewhere, you know, and remember the DAG to some degree. So my personal observations is maybe a prediction for 2023 is that we're going to have to get a lot more precise about what we mean by reasoning. From my observations, I've seen that the language models learn what causes what, call it say common sense causal knowledge, that it's learning from kind of statistical regularities and statements of causal relationships around training data. It learns something of transitivity, for example. So say if it says that the cost of cigarettes causes the causes whether or not somebody smokes and whether or not somebody smokes affects whether or not they get lung cancer, it does okay at concluding that the cost of cigarettes indirectly causes lung cancer. It can it learn something of the nature of the causal relationships. So for example, that's not just that smoking is a cause of lung cancer, but that smoking that increased smoking increases the probability or the risk of getting lung cancer. And I've learned that it's also types of useful causal nuance. Say, for example, if you ask it to say on a scale of one to 10, how likely is it that there are some people out there that for whom more smoking leads to less chances of lung cancer? If you compare that statement to there are some subscribers out there where if I were increased promotional emails will actually lead them to 
will increase their risk of turn or increase their risk of not using the product, even though the promotional emails are intended to get them to use the product more. Like the fact that first relationship tends to be monotonic while that second relationship is not, even though those statements are structured the same, it can pick those up as well. And so, and that's important in causal inference. So if I know that there are no subpopulations out there where smoking decreases the risk of lung cancer, but I do know that there are some populations out there of, of customers where more promotions actually turns them off. That is actually very useful functional information in terms of the relationship between the cause and the effect that I can use in causal inferences. And so it's picking that up in the training data. I mean, I guess I, there's a question of can these, reason, can these models reason causally, I think is... It's a bit of an ill-posed question because you could never really, it'd be hard to validate, right? If it, for example, is using the do calculus to answer some kind of causal inference query, how would you know? And then how would you know that that result is repeatable when you get to another domain? So I think the question of whether or not they can reason causally is interesting, although probably a little bit ill-posed, I think. And I think it's actually kind of talking about you know, looking forward, like, and I think of some recent papers like uh, Program as Thought. I'm sorry, the name is escaping me, but there was these uh, papers where you were kind of getting, you were getting improved reasoning by asking the language model to reason step-by-step. A program of thoughts prompting? A program of thoughts prompting. So like this, these program of thoughts prompting was like, rather than saying, being using natural language to reason step-by-step step, kind of can you move it to some symbolic language and then that's executable for example in some in a programming environment and then have its enumerated steps or train it to enumerated steps in terms of that symbolic language yeah show its work but rather than using natural language using some kind of domain specific language for formal reasoning and then uh at the very end only then do you evaluate the expression as an internal, external interpreter and then having it focus on the actual, say, steps of the formal reasoning. And so, I mean, that's what we mentioned, for example, the do calculus and other formal reasoning algorithms you have in causal inference. That's exactly what that is. And so you could, for example, train these models to go through the steps of formal causal reasoning and, and get good results. And I don't know if you would get any theoretical guarantees, but you'd probably be able to build something useful with it. So when you think about the the intersection of foundation models, LLMs, and causality, what do you think are the most exciting research opportunities, and where do you think we'll see significant gains over the next year to end years? Pick your end. I mean, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of combining causality with these large language models. I just mentioned, like, I can go into Bing Chat and get a graph. I can also ask it to take that graph and implement it for me in NetworkX. You know, I mentioned the PyY suite of tools. There's one in there called DoY, which is for causal effect estimation, as well as some other things. And I could say, all right, well, given this graph and here's some tabular data, tell me Python code for a causal effect analysis that gives me the causal effect of smoking on cancer. And it will give me that code and then I can just go and run it. So from a standpoint of if you're going to build a tool for a data for a data analyst who didn't want to kind of interact with directly with the Python code, or you wanted to make knowledge extraction from a domain expert a lot easier. I mean, this is, I mean, this changes the game. I mean, this really reduces the amount of effort that goes into just getting a causal effect inference analysis, for example, off the ground. And so I think that's probably obvious to everybody right by now. I mean, a colleague of mine named Amit Sharma, he recently published a tweet about how there's a data set called the Tubingen cause and effect pairs. 
where it's just data for pairs of causes and effects. So say, for example, altitude and temperature. And then you know, the goal was to kind of use algorithms to figure out what causes what. You can throw away the data and then just ask about these pairs to large language models, and it gets very high accuracy in terms of what causes what. And so, I mean, now in causal inference, we're often concerned with objective truth. And obviously with large language models, objective truth in the real world can be an issue. But in terms of cold starting a causal graph and a causal coding workflow, I think it's, you could, if you could just surface it to the human and the human could edit it and say, oh, wait, that never causes that. That's a lot. So that's LLMs as a tool for researchers and developers that want to use causal models, data scientists, of course, uh, analysts who want to use causal models. What about causal models, causality as a tool to make LLM output better? We kind of are well aware of, and I think we've talked a little bit about it, at least the term hallucinations, I think, has come up in this conversation. LLM output is not perfect. One would think that if we've got this set of tools around causality uh, that's sufficiently developed, we can somehow couple that with LLMs to get them to produce better output in some way. How do you see that kind of playing out? It seems kind of obvious, right? Like large language models are probabilistic. They're a model of the joint distribution on, on language. And what they're doing is one way of thinking about that is they kind of maybe compress a bunch of regular causal relationships in the world into some latent representation. And then based on that, they generate causal statements that are plausible in some world, if not true <laughs> in this world. And it actually something where, you know, I love you know that. <laughs> <laughs> like if it's not true in this world, it's true in some world. And it's like, like I said, we were talking about counterfactuals. It's like, yeah, we're you're reasoning over different possible worlds. And some of them are more likely than others. And some of them, are, and in one world, things actually happen. And so this sounds like the thing that an LLM would say as its own apologist. <laughs> and so like, I think you could have a causal model be an ombudsman for the causal, <laughs> for the veracity of what's coming out of these models. I mean, particularly if, for example, if you can, it can generate something and then you can ask it to say, okay, put that in terms of some domain specific language that I can run. I can run through this causal validator, this causal fact validator. And, and, and maybe it's not a causal model. Maybe it's like a knowledge base. Maybe like, maybe there's some kind of something going through a, an SMT solver or a theorem prover, right? We have a lot of useful algorithms for reasoning about constraints or about causal fact or fiction. It seems obvious that you would, and since, that, since large language models are so good at generating code that you would want to pair these together. So I think that we'll see a lot of developments there in the, com in the coming year. And again, I, that seems to me to kind of, I think for a lot of folks, it's obvious. I think there was a, a paper, um, A-star search, but it was a, it was a large language model paper that was modifying the decoder with heuristics for some downstream outcome. So in other words, rather than just saying generating some code, some generating some text, you could, and then rejecting it, if for example, it wasn't true, you could maybe intervene in the actual decoding into the generated text directly. I think that this particular paper was focused on the A-star search algorithm, but there's, there's no reason why you couldn't say, for example, use it to, to define heuristics that had you avoid words that you didn't want the algorithm to generate or to, to assert facts that based on some prior knowledge to be untrue. So for example, using some some attached in some way model as opposed to prompting as a way to guide the model's output. 
like hidden prompting or starter prompts or things like that. I think you would use all of these in concert. I mean, like, so, I mean, I, I mean, if you look at the new service we have with Bing, like it's using Bing's search technology to augment both the prompt and, and the results, right? And so I think it, it probably the products, the future products that are using, say, for example, formal causal reasoning or other kinds of formal algorithms probably has that type of interplay. How deep have you gotten into the Bing product? I'm curious about if it's something that you're you familiar with. The Bing product, you put in some prompt, it gives you a response, and then unique relative to ChatGPT, at least, is that it will provide references. And you know, I saw a tweet that referred to those as sources. It's unclear to me whether those sort are sources in a causal sense, meaning like I got this information and it influenced the output, or I created this output and I have correlated it to these external sources. And I'm wondering if you have any insight into what's going on there that you can share. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right in that it's better to view those as you know, so if they were causal, you're assuming that in the generation of the text, the algorithm somehow knew that these sources were used in the trading data. It's a, that's a stretch. I think just giving people useful links to say, like, if it's making a statement, then you can click on it and then go to a place where you can kind of go deeper. That's that's quite valuable. Kind of thinking forward in terms of this space too, like, I mean, you know, so everything I mentioned so far in terms of just connecting large language models to some kind of inner or outer loop with formal reasoning algorithms like you have in causal inference. I think it's, it's low-hanging fruit. If I had to kind of stretch stretch it out a little bit and think about what other things we might see, I think about, so if you can take a large language model, like I said, give it get it to give you a graph and then give it to tell you how to implement it in code and tell you how to take that graph in code and run it through an analysis. And so like that intermediate representation, I think that in terms of how we could improve reasoning with these algorithms. I think there's a lot we could do there. Now, say for example, in for example, a, re, a representation of my causal knowledge about a problem is a causal DAG, but I can also, it's not just a visualization. I can do things with that causal DAG. I can reason about probability distributions. I can make assertions that, that something is conditionally independent of other things given some given its causal parents, for example. I could say model an intervention by applying graph surgery, right? So like if I want to understand how the world changes when I intervene on a node, I do graph surgery, but which means I remove the incoming edges from that node in the graph. And so in other words, I am doing some kind of transformation on that causal representation. And so that I think it's going to be interesting to think about how that ability to operate in ways that have like proofs of correctness on that intermediate representation. And that's that's at the intersection section between natural language and some, maybe some kind of computation is it's gonna be really interesting and might have some interesting use cases there. So an example I think of is like uh, reinforcing learning of human feedback. And we think about, I mean, essentially if the reinforcing learning of human feedback that was used to train chat GPT, you have humans rank completions and that provides signal back to the algorithm about which completions are more human-like or, or you know, correspond with what humans might say. But for example, one could imagine 
instead of just ranking a few completions, it could provide, say, a causal graph, and then the human could edit edges in that causal graph. And the entire graph now becomes, which is a much richer representation than a ranking set of choices. Humans are very good at reasoning about graph. So it could be a causal graph. It could be a, you know, a hierarchy of say topics, or it, it could be a, a graph of relationships. And that's, and these are very rich representations that humans understand intuitively. Arguably they're part of human inductive biases out of, or in terms of cause and effect relationships or hierarchies, for example. And if you could say, for example, feed that kind of information back into the large language model or the foundation model using rather than just the ranked list, that could be perhaps a more powerful reward signal that you can provide to improving these models. And that's just kind of one way of thinking about it. Like another one might be, um, you know, if, for example, I could, I could ask the large language model to generate a graph for me, then I can ask it to change that graph to re represent some intervention. And if, once I can do that, I can potentially ask it to do some pretty advanced causal reasoning by chaining together a bunch of graph operations on that graph and then getting to something that's perhaps better than the informal causal reasoning that you would find in a natural language corpus. You identified a, an interesting use case that you've seen emerge this year, SACAN. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so SACAN is, I guess, yeah, you call it a use case from Google. And so it, it, so this was for using large language models with robotics, right? So the idea was that you would take the large language model and ask it for a set of instructions for how the robot could solve some problem, so it could execute some task, right? And so basically, you're using the large language model for planning. And, but of course, the large language model doesn't have embodied agency in the world. It can't intervene in the world. And so, but it, what, what the robot would then do is take that large language model generated plan and then modify it such that, it, that it's focusing on a series of interventions that the agent can actually execute in its environment. Right. And so I, I thought this was a good example. Like for me, when I saw this, I mean, this, I think this made a big splash in reinforcement learning and the robotics community. But for me, I'm thinking like, well, this is just causal decision-making or a sequential causal decision-making with servos. Right. So it's just like, once you, once you, uh, once you remove to, you know, we were talking about like, you know, could you then take a large language model, produce something that could be digested by a causal model and then the causal model could then maybe modify that output such that it's causally feasible, that seems like a, a very natural extension from this SACAN work. In fact, in fact, easier, right? Because you don't have to worry about the various constraints that a robot faces. Interesting. Interesting. I alluded to it earlier, but maybe before we wrap, we can touch on another prediction for 2023, and that's that there'll be a new book hitting the shelves that you've written. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that effort and what you're hoping to accomplish with the book. Uh, sure. Yeah, I'm writing a book called Causal Machine Learning, and yeah, the you, know, you mentioned at the beginning of our talk, like this talk by Yasha Bengio, kind of kind of opened the idea to the machine learning community that causality was relevant to machine learning, and that deep learning techniques could scale up causal models. And so this book is essentially about that. So I mean, you know, most causal inference books are very much focused on the kind of traditional causal effect inference workflows you see in data science. So how much does something affect something else and doing so in a way that is adjusting for confounding. And obviously I, I cover that, but I want to make sure that you can do it using probabilistic machine learning models in tools like PyTorch 
and that the inference algorithms that we've built using these deep learning tools, like variational inference, for example, can be leveraged to do the kind of statistical heavy lifting of causal inferences. And so it, this allows you to kind of focus on the understanding how causality works, implementing it in machine learning code using PyTorch and, and leveraging people's experience with these machine learning and deep learning tools to solve causal problems. And of course, understand the interplay between machine learning, particularly deep learning and causal inference. Awesome. Awesome. And along those lines, you, through your company, All Deep, have developed and taught a number of courses and have done so via the Twimble community in the past as well. Like, do you have any courses coming up that folks should know about if they're hear all this conversation and are inspired to, to learn a bit more? Uh, yes, yeah. So we still run our causal machine learning course. We have a probabilistic machine learning course that essentially grew out of the causal machine learning course for all the things having to do with probabilistic inference and modeling and machine learning that we, I couldn't focus on in a causal machine learning course. So this is it's a lot like Kevin Murphy's book, essentially those types of topics. So variational inference, variational autoencoders, normalizing flows, and Bayesian hierarchical models, and latent variable models. And we're also working on a course on building products around large language models. I'm offering this at Northeastern University to graduate students. And then once we kind of figure out how it's how well it's going and kind of smooth out the rough edges and we'll offer it to professionals but the idea here is we've already seen a whole bunch of products that are you know using chat or using gpt3 to write a, an seo optimized blog post about brownies or something like that right but like but really understanding kind of what the limitations of these models are and then how to deal with these limitations by connecting them with other existing tools and building products for and users that really solve an important problem. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the topic of that course. So it's a bit of an experiment. It's a much more, I'd say, how to build products with AI style course as opposed to AI theory type of course. We're excited about it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely make sure folks in our community know when uh, it's online and ready to go. Thank you. Well, Robert, this has been a wonderful conversation. Great catching up. I certainly learned a ton and wonderful having you on the show again. Thanks for having me, Sam. I really enjoyed myself. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.